following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, this, uh, today is actually, if you are following kind of the church calendar, today is actually uh, Palm Sunday. Um, I'm not going to actually be preaching uh, the passage about, the, about Palm Sunday because we covered it several weeks ago. And one of the problems of going through Matthew is that uh, Palm Sunday happens in chapter 21, and the death and resurrection don't happen in chapter 27 and 28. A lot happens in those few days between Jesus entering Jerusalem and his crucifixion. And so um, we kind of have to jump around a little bit. So we're actually this morning going to jump ahead out of our normal order a little bit, uh, just uh, jump ahead a few verses to chapter 23. Uh, and the reason we're looking at chapter 23 is the end of chapter 23 ends with Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Uh, and in Luke, uh, this lament is actually given on uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, and it really is kind of a highlight of what happens between Palm Sunday and the cross. If you remember, if you remember in Palm Sunday, Jesus is welcomed into the city as, as a king. And he is honored and, and welcomed. And yet, just a few days later, uh, they are nailing him to the cross. Uh, and so everything that happens uh, in Matthew in between those chapters is really highlighting the growing tension and really animosity between the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus. Uh, so we're going to look at chapter 23 because it, it just highlights this conflict uh, that started building uh, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday and ended with the cross. Uh, we're going to begin by just reading the first 12 verses. We're going to look through the whole chapter, but it's kind of long. So we're going to just read the first 12 verses and then uh, break it down verse by verse. So read with me and verse, uh, follow along in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others." But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, the passage continues on with uh, seven woes that Jesus launches on the Pharisees and on the scribes. Uh, and we'll look at those in a minute. Uh, but I titled this Blind Guides of the Blind uh, because Jesus um, calls out these leaders as really blind teachers and blind leaders. Uh, but before we look at the passages, uh, get our, our brains working a little bit, uh, here's something for you to think about. We all, every single one of us, that's living on this planet, uh, is a product of the influence and teaching of others. 
right? You are not, there's no such really thing as, there's really no such thing as a self-made person. You are, like it or not, the result of a lot of people who have had influence in your, in your life, in your mind, in your thinking. Um, it could be things like, like your parents had a huge influence in your life early on. Um, uh, shaping the way you think and the way you see the world. Uh, after that, you go to school, first grade, teacher, uh, all the way up through high school. They are influencing uh, in very powerful ways how you think and how you see the world and how you think about things. Um, even into college, maybe even more so. Shaping your worldview, your picture of life and the world around you. And then, of course, there's friends, there's uh, society, social media, books, music, the news. <laughs> All uh, are having influence on the way we think. Uh, think about ourselves, think about the world, think about the big questions of life. Um, so our thinking and our worldview is not a matter of our own making. It has been shaped in you by other people, by other forces and other factors. And have you ever stopped to wonder if what we have been told is really the truth? Right? How do you know what you were thinking and what you were believing and what you were holding on to is true? Um, what happens if what we have been told all along is wrong or is a lie or is pointing us in the wrong direction? Like, like, how do you know your first grade teacher really had life all figured out? How do you know that? Did you check her? Did you check her you know, credentials when you were in first grade? Well, probably not, right? Uh, most of us discover that our parents don't have it figured out when we, when we hit seventh grade. Right? You hit seventh grade, and all of a sudden it dawns on you, my mom and dad are stupid. Right? And we just know that's what happens to every seventh grader. And uh, they, they, we, they, they don't have it figured out. We're convinced, man, I'm not listening to parents anymore because they don't know what they're talking about, right? So what do we turn to? Well, we turn to the coolest kid in seventh grade because clearly they have it all figured out. You know, everybody likes him. He's cool. Surely this is the ultimate source of truth, right? And so we follow other kids and our friends and we listen to uh, music and pop stars who are drug addicted and end up in rehab centers because they, they have it all figured out, right? Um, right? And, and so we grow up influenced by these ideas, and how do we know our view is right? right? Uh, and right now we see the world, in many places the world is in huge turmoil because uh, it comes down to a war of ideas. Worldviews fighting against each other, whether it's liberals or conservatives or uh, um, whatever labels you want. I won't go into all the labels. We won't go into the labels. But you pick your labels that are opposites, right? And these are worldviews who people are convinced their view is right. right? And, and that's how we are. We tend to think our view must be the correct view because I believe it. And we just assume I'm right. Clearly they are wrong. But how do you know? Right? How do you know? Uh, they can't all be correct, which, by the way, that's a view. <laughs> There's a worldview out there that says, well, they all can be, you know, everybody's truth is their own truth, you know. Um, but how do you know that's true? Well, because they're all true, right? There's huge flaws in this thinking. 
So, so the question for us is really, when, do you, when, when or how do you stop becoming a product of the teachers and influencers who have been shaping you? Right? How do you put off those, all those ideas and, 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 and stop being a product of what other people think? Is it even possible? And if it is possible, how do you know that the new worldview you take on for yourself is, is any better than the old version? Well, um, Jesus actually addresses these very kinds of issues with the Pharisees, with, with this, this passage about the Pharisees and scribes. And um, uh, he's talking about people in Israel who have tremendous influence as teachers, scribes and the Pharisees. And, and Jesus starts out with a stern warning to them. Jesus said to the crowd, so Jesus is in the temple, and this scene in the temple has been going on actually for a couple chapters uh, they've been asking him questions. He's been telling parables that make them look really bad. They're trying to challenge his authority. Who, who gives you permission to be the one who's right, to tell us what to do? And they're having these debates. And, and finally, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, uh, so you've got the crowds, you've got Jesus' disciples, you've got these leaders all dispersed. There may have been hundreds or even thousands of people because it's Passover. And the temple is packed with people. And Jesus was the news item. So they're all there wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. And he says to the crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. And he goes on, and he, he uh, in the end, um, says a lot of bad things about these guys. Uh, he, in fact, he launches into a very dramatic condemnation and warning against these most influential teachers in Israel. Um, he says they sit on the seat of Moses. Uh, that's a fancy way of saying they have authority to teach uh, Moses' commandments, what was written in the Old Testament. Uh, they didn't literally sit on Moses' chair. <laughs> I don't know that Moses had a chair, but it's just a figure of speech, right? That they, they speak uh, as teachers of the law of Moses. And so he says, you need to listen to them. And, and uh, there's a lot of irony in what Jesus says when he says, listen to them, because the rest of what he says in the chapter is says, they're false. They're failures as teachers. They are bad teachers, and they're teaching the wrong thing. So Jesus is saying this somewhat sarcastically. But I think he's making a point here that we do, we do listen to teachers. And maybe we have to, right? Maybe we're expected to listen to teachers. And they have great influence in our thinking. And certainly that was true of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's important to understand a little, uh, a little bit about who these guys are. Um, uh, the Pharisee is not a position or an office. Like you don't, you don't apply to become a Pharisee, right? It doesn't work that way. The Pharisees were actually a group of people following a specific worldview or theology. Right? So, so you might think of a label today like a liberal or a conservative. Right? Or somebody who follows some religious camp like evangelical or progressive. Right? It's, a, it's a description of a broad um, scope of, of teachings and thinking and theology that the Pharisees subscribe to. So maybe we could call them, instead of Pharisees, maybe we could call them evangelicals. <laughs> you evangelicals. Right? This is a group of people who have shared beliefs about God and the Bible. 
The scribes, on the other hand, was an official position or office. And these guys were actually authorized by the, by the church, the, the temple, to be teachers of the law. And a scribe was somebody who actually copied the law. And as those who copied it, of course, back in those days, you didn't just get out your computer and print it off on the printer. If you wanted a copy of something, you had to go to a person and say, hey, I'd like you to copy this for me. And that was a scribe. And they would sit down and hand copy right, books and letters and, and the Bible. And because they copied it, because they were literate and well-read and educated, they also were seen as the teachers. They were authorized with authority to teach officially what the law of Moses was. And the reason that Jesus puts these two together, the scribes and Pharisees, is that many scribes were actually Pharisees. Right? So they held a teaching position, but their theology or the camp that they represent was the camp of the Pharisees. So it would be kind of like saying, you know, Tim's the preacher and he's in the camp of evangelicals, right? Whatever. That's kind of how it was. Uh, so the point is, these guys were, were tremendously influential. They're who everybody looked to as the voice of authority, right? As the ones who could teach, the ones who knew the right answers and would instruct them correctly uh, to shape their ideas and their worldview. Uh, and they did this because they had this authority from Scripture, they were supposed to be teaching the Bible. And the thing is, the Bible came from God, and so it's this idea that God knows the truth, God knows the right answers, and these spokespeople for God are going to lead us in the right direction as they uh, unpack uh, the truth of the Bible. So it's, re- it's authoritative. Uh, and, and throughout history, religious voices, religious experts have had this kind of influence over people because they claim to speak for God, right? And of course, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But when they say, well, God says, people tend to think, well, I should listen to that, right? So that's what I do. I stand up on Sunday morning. I don't say, hey, this is what Tim Dunham thinks. You should listen to this because this is what I think, right? No, I, 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 I teach the Bible, right? I say, I don't really know anything, but I'm basing what I'm saying on the authority of the word, right? So you need to pay attention to it because these are God's words. And so this... Uh, this has been the case for many centuries. In fact, up until just recent history, uh, religious teachers were the main voice of authority. They were the main ones shaping how people thought and saw the world. But increasingly in modern times, about the last two or three hundred years since the age of the Enlightenment, uh, increasingly the voice of science and reason has come to be a competing voice of authority. Right? Science claims to really know the truth. And the scientists would say, uh, you know, the Bible and religion is all just kind of myth and we can't prove it. You can't put it under a microscope and check it. And so it's, it's not really true. But science can be checked with scientific method. We can put it under a microscope. We can subject it to tests and we can prove it's true. So, for example, we know the COVID vaccines are absolutely safe because they've done research. Right? So who's getting that vaccine? Wow. You guys aren't convinced, right? About 30% of people in the world aren't convinced. At least 30% are not so sure, right? So um, even though science claims to be an authority, a lot of people still even believe science, right? Um, And the, the thing is, can science really prove everything? There's many 
areas that fall outside of the scope of science. There's too many things you can't look at under a microscope. Let's say you fall in love, and there's this girl or this guy, and, and you, th- you, you love this person, and you think they love them. And, and, you, and you go to your doctor and say, I want to do a, I want to do a test on, on this person to find out if they really love me. Can you do like a blood test for that? You know, like, do they really love me blood test? Have you ever had that done? No, because there's no such thing, right? Because there's something science cannot prove. Uh, it can't prove if your girlfriend really loves you or if they just like your car, right? Um, science can't prove that, I'm sorry. Um, science cannot prove if God is real or not. Because God, by definition, exists outside the realm of the physical universe. And science limits itself to what can be seen in the physical universe. So how can science prove something that exists beyond its scope of vision? Right? It's impossible. It can't. Right? So, so there's limits to, to what science can do. But yet, some people claim it is the voice of authority. Right? Uh, another growing voice with great power and influence right now is the voice of the, of the mob, the voice of the crowd. Uh, if enough people post something and share it on Facebook, it becomes truth. Right? right? Just by sheer volume, if it's shared enough on Facebook, it's true. Right? It must be because everybody believes it. It must be true. Right? And yet we know there's all kinds of fake news and misinformation and outright lies and yet it's amazing the influence this voice has in people's lives. Right? They believe it's true, regardless of the actual facts. So that's the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, uh, they have this powerful influence. But what about them? Are they really teaching truth? Right? Are, they, are they teachers that you can trust and follow? Well, Jesus says, uh, I don't think so. Verse 3 says, he says, do observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. So first off, they don't even follow their own teaching. That's a warning. Secondly, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to help move them with one finger. So what what is the method of the Pharisee? And, And Jesus says basically the method of the Pharisees is quite flawed. Uh, and, and the problem is that their method was to turn the law of God into a, a burden that was impossible to bear. Right? They piled laws and rules on top of laws and rules. And not just rules that came from the Bible. Right? They made rules about rules about rules about rules. I mean, they were, and it was this burden, it was this weight that was impossible to carry. And the fact is, uh, Jesus doesn't mean here they didn't try. Actually, the Pharisees did try to keep all their own rules. But what he means is they couldn't even do it. Right? They couldn't even keep their own rules because they were so impossible. Um, uh, and the reality is that much of what's being taught in the world today, much of what's shaping people's worldviews, is a system that is impossible. And nobody's giving help to figure out how to make it work. Uh, and I won't, I won't go into a lot of examples, but, uh, but much of the worldview, much of the world system uh, is inherently impossible. Right? Uh, I know, uh, for me, I, I discovered how this worked in about, in about uh, 
ninth grade, in my ninth grade math class, the teacher told me I had to multiply eight times A. Eight times A. And uh, I told her she's out of her mind. Because letters and numbers don't mix. You cannot multiply eight times A, right? Numbers are for math. Letters are for spelling. And you don't mix. You know, you don't mix letters and numbers. And so I went to my teacher, and this just made no sense to me at all. What do you mean eight times A? That's just ridiculous. So I went to my teacher, and I said, I don't get this. Like, what do you mean multiply eight times A? I just don't get this, Okay. And she went up in some crazy foreign language for like 15 minutes. I didn't understand a word she said. And at the end of it, she said, and just figure it out for yourself. Right? And to this day, I still don't get it. And I see people do this. Like people, they, they, they take letters and numbers and they, they do stuff with it. I think they're all crazy, right? I just don't get it. Right? It's impossible in my thinking, right? And that was the problem with these guys. They, they, they made rules and they made systems. They made things that they couldn't even keep and they gave no help or instruction for how to actually implement it in their life. Right? It was a system that was impossible with no guidebook, no instruction manual. Right? It just crushed people under the burden and weight of it. Um, so not only was their method flawed, but so were their motives uh, the reason that they were doing this was flawed from the beginning. What were their motives? Well, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. A phylactery was a box uh, that put in it uh, portions of the, of the law, right? And they would wear it on their head or on their arm. And it says they would make their phylacteries broad. So you could have a small box that, like this, or you could have like a big box, <laughs> They had big boxes. They had really big boxes on their head, right, to impress people. Or they could make their fringes long. The law commanded that they, they had basically prayer tassels on their garments to remind them uh, to follow God and pray, right? So if little tassels are good, big tassels are great, right? So they would have really long tassels. Ooh, right? That's impressive. Um, so maybe it's like the person who walks around, you know, if the Bible's good, the 400-pound King James, you know, family Bible is better, right? Ooh, look how spiritual they are, how big their Bible is, right? That's kind of what they're talking about. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. Like, they love to be applauded. They love to be respected. They love the important titles, the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others, Right? They loved the status, the glory. They loved uh, how important they felt and how important they thought they were. They loved the admiration and respect of others. And that was why they were teachers. But they weren't teachers because they deeply were deeply convicted that this was truth. This was a way for them to feel successful and important and to get the praise of people. It was a show for self-glory not a way to actually help people or to shape a worldview that was true and that worked. Um, uh, so so their, their methods are flawed, their motives are flawed. And Jesus says in the end, they are, they are blind guides and hypocrites. In fact, in this next passage, we're going to kind of skim through real quick. Uh, he, Jesus says over and over again, how blind they are. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. 
And there's a picture, okay, there's a picture. Imagine you want to go on a trip up in the mountains, and it's treacherous, there's canyons, there's cliffs, there's uh, dangerous animals, there's deep caverns and deep canyons, and you need a guide. And you need a guide because you yourself are blind, right? So you find a guide and you head off on the trail, and as you're walking along, you discover that your guide is also blind, <laughs> How do you feel about that, right? That's what Jesus says. You are blind guides of the blind. Uh, 17, you blind fools. <laughs> 19, you blind men. 24, you blind guides again. Uh, they did not know where they were going. right? They didn't know where the cliffs and the canyons and the dangers were. But they said, follow me. I can't see anything, but it makes me feel so special to be a guide. <laughs> Right? That's what these guys were about. I'm important because I'm a guide. I have no idea where I'm going, but that doesn't matter because I just feel good about me. Right? Right? Jesus also calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite is an actor, someone playing a part, pretending to be something they're not. What they were pretending was to be somebody who knew the way and who really understood what God was saying. They were pretending to be a spokesperson for God. Um, and, and therefore having authority to shape people's thinking and worldview. Uh, but they were just pretending. It was a game. It was fake. They did not know God. Uh, they did not know the way. And no matter how good they acted, right, it did not make them somebody to, to follow, right? Uh, how would you feel if you meet somebody and, and, they, and, and you saw on TV they were a doctor? Right? They play a part on a show as a doctor. And you meet them and you say, hey, I've got this medical condition. Can you do surgery? <laughs> I, need a, I need a brain transplant. right? And I saw you were a doctor on TV. Maybe you could do it. Right? Was that who you would trust just because they played a part? Well, of course not. right? You want somebody who really has been trained and who knows, who's not just acting. Well, so, so, uh, so Jesus says these guys are, are, are fakes, they are blind, and his warning is to them, but also to those who follow them. Right? And he goes off on these seven woes. So in verse 13 he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, there's that word, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. First uh, woe, first warning, first criticism of these guys that uh, Jesus makes is that they are leading people to destruction. He says, look, you're blind, you are actors, you don't know where you're going, you yourselves are headed for destruction, for hell. And, and you, you're taking all those who follow you with you. That's a serious warning, both to them and to those they follow. Um, and, and the reason Jesus can say that is because Jesus made it clear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But these leaders had rejected Jesus. They had denied that Jesus was a true prophet and was the true Son of God. And they refused to follow Jesus. 
And by refusing to follow Jesus, they were slamming the door of the kingdom shut in people's faces. Serious charge and serious warning. Jesus continues on uh, with two more woes in verses 16 through 22. Uh, Kind of long and a little bit confusing, but uh, I'll read it. But basically what Jesus is saying here is that they really have no clue about what the Bible teaches. They have no clue what the truth of Scripture is, even though they claim to be teaching it. Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes it sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Uh, Long story, we don't have time to go into it, but it had to do with making vows. And in the Old Testament, if you made a vow, if you made a promise or swore an oath, you were bound by that, period. And to break that oath was very serious. But uh, the scribes and Pharisees saw that people made oaths all the time. Well, I swear by this and this that I'm telling the truth. And they weren't, right? Uh, and so what they decided is, well, we're going to, we're going to make some things binding. If you swear on some things, it means it's real. But if you swear on these things, you don't have to keep it, right? So it's kind of like, you know, the whole, I, I promise, right? It's that kind of thing. Like, like supposedly if you pr- promise with your fingers crossed, it doesn't count. I don't know where that came from. Probably from the Pharisees. I don't know. Uh, same thing. It's like, well, if I swear by the altar, it doesn't count. But if I swear by the sacrifice on the altar, that's binding. Right? Well, you see, they, 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 they couldn't keep the law, so they made up their own plan. They didn't understand the Scriptures, so they just made up their own version. And what Jesus is saying here is they grossly fail to uh, adequately or correctly interpret Scripture. But they're so far off. And, and Jesus shows by his own logic how ridiculous their thinking is. Um, Same thing in verse 23, same problem. They misunderstand, misinterpret Scripture. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. What is that about? Well, certainly tithing is not a minor thing, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that they've They've misunderstood the priorities of Scripture. They've misunderstood what's really important. And they made a big deal out of tithing. That tithing actually is a big deal. We should give uh, our tithe to God. It's a way to honor him. But what he's really talking about here is they were tithing ridiculously tiny things, right? So, so imagine, you know, before you go to cook your dinner, uh, back in those days they used all fresh ingredients, so you get out your dill leaf, <coughs> Your dill leaf. Have you ever seen a dill? It's pretty small. It's one little dill leaf. Okay, it's this big. And you now need to chop it into ten exact pieces so you can tithe one of the little pieces. 
And how do you tithe that one little piece? Like, do you go to the temple right then and give it to God? I mean, what does it look like to tithe one-tenth of a little tiny dill leaf? Right? It's ridiculous, right? But this was a big deal to them. And they debated this over and over, and they had whole, you know, workshops. Tithing, you know, tithing your dill, 101 workshop, right? This was so important to them. And Jesus says, well, you should be, you know, you should make, you should not neglect these things, okay? It's your job. But you have missed the big things of the law, like justice, mercy, faithfulness. Right? He says, you're like people who have, who have strained out a gnat, but swallowed a camel. Right? That's a tiny little bug that was in clean, unclean. And they were careful to strain out that gnat so they didn't actually swallow it, make themselves unclean. But they turn around and swallow a camel. Right? Uh, God had told them what was, what was most important. Matthew 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The Pharisees weren't doing any of those. They were failing on every one of those. Right? They mistreated the poor and, and the weak. They, sh- they never showed love and kindness to people. And, and they were anything but humble. They were blind guides without knowing where they were going. And the problem was this. If the author- source of their authority was Scripture, uh, but they didn't really know what the Bible taught, how could their teaching be authoritative? If they were misrepre- misrepresenting Scripture and deviating from its clear, simple message, how could their teaching be accurate or true? It couldn't. Lastly, the last woe, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Um, The problem here is they cared only about outward appearance. So they were like a cup that they scrubbed the outside, make the outside super clean, but inside happened to be full of sewer water. Mm -mm, Yum, yum, right? You want a drink? No, right? But it looks so clean on the outside. Right? Or they're like whitewashed tombs. Uh, it's interesting, at Passover time, uh, pilgrims would come from all over, and they would swarm Jerusalem and the surrounding hills. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that across the Kidron Valley is this massive hillside covered with tombs. Huge, huge hillside covered with tombs, right? And for a Jewish person to step on a tomb would make you unclean. So you just traveled for three weeks, several hundred miles to come to Jerusalem to, to celebrate Passover, and boom, you actually step on a grave, and you're disqualified. And you have to sit on the sideline, and you can't participate, right? So they would whitewash the tombs to mark them, to prevent anybody from accidentally stepping or stumbling on one, right? And so they would also look clean, and they would look uh, visible, uh, it would spruce them up, right? But inside they were full of death and corruption. 
And Jesus says that's their lives, right? And the problem is that by focusing only on the externals, uh, you miss the, the, what's really important. What's really important is what? Your heart. God cares about the heart. He's not so interested in external appearances. And their hearts, he says, are full of greed and self-indulgence and ultimately death. He says, you are dead on the inside. And the only hope for you is the new life that only Jesus can bring. You are spiritually dead. It doesn't matter how much you spruce it up, it doesn't make those dead bones inside any more alive. You need resurrection life in you. You need Jesus to come and give you new life to those dead bones. The outward appearances are meaningless. Uh, And then Jesus really summarizes all of his woes in this last woe. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, in shedding the blood of the prophets. Right? So throughout history, prophets had not been very popular. And it was a dangerous occupation. And oftentimes the prophets were killed for preaching the word. And they said, if we had lived back in the days of our fathers, we would not do that. We would be different. And see, we're decorating the honored tombs of the prophets to show we honor them, right? But Jesus says, you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. By your own admission, you admit that you're their children, right? Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Jesus means by that, go full all out with the heart of your fathers who killed the prophets. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. A lot there, but let's just summarize it this way. Right at this very moment, these leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Whether or not they thought Jesus was the Messiah is kind of one thing. But clearly, Jesus was a prophet sent from God. And they had determined to kill Jesus. And by that, they were proving they were no different than their fathers. And Jesus says, on this generation will come all the blood, all the guilt all the wrath of God, because you are going to fill up to the very full the errors of your ancestors. And in fact, the judgment that uh, is coming is the very destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which Jesus is going to talk about uh, in the next couple chapters. Um, So those are the woes. And and Jesus ends by uh, calling out uh, the devastating results of getting it wrong. These guys had a wrong worldview. And they were teaching others a wrong worldview. And they were leading people in the wrong direction. And so Jesus says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He makes this judgment. This city is guilty. But, but, But notice his words of compassion. 
How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says judgment is coming upon them. But it's not what Jesus wants. right? But it is what they have chosen for themselves because they are rejecting Christ the Messiah. And Jesus says, my heart is to gather you like a, a hand gathers its chicks and covers you with its wings and protects you and saves you. But you won't come to me. And in fact, you are about to kill me. And, and so Jesus ends with these uh, these. These devastating words, see, your house is left to you desolate or empty. And, and this is actually the last time Jesus teaches in the temple. And Jesus is about to walk out of the temple. And what he's saying here is, when I leave, with me goes the very presence of, and glory of God. The, the temple was supposed to be where, the place where God was. But he says, God is about to leave. When I leave, as God said, when I leave, the very presence and glory of God departs and your house will be empty. No longer will God be there. Um, and ultimately the temple would be destroyed. But much more serious than it being destroyed is it being empty, void of God's presence. And, and so, so here's the consequence. And this is why this matters so much. How do you know your worldview is right? How do you know that all those voices that have spoken into you are right or true? There's a lot at stake here. Eternity is at stake. Because if you're following a blind teacher, you are headed for death and destruction and judgment, the Bible says. No matter how convinced you are, you're right. right? Uh, your conviction, your, your, your certainty, your confidence... It doesn't change your destiny right? if you're following the wrong teacher. So how do we get it right? How do we make sure that we have the right worldview and we're on the right path, the true one? Well, it's real simple. Um, first, the wrong way to get it right. I mean, the, the thing we don't want to do. Some people think the solution is not to trust anyone. The teachers are all bad. Not only are my parents wrong, but they're all wrong, right? They're all blind. Uh, everybody's blind. So the only way to stop being a product of the, these blind teachers and influencers who shaped me is to become my own guide. But here's the thing. If everybody's blind, how is it you can see? Right? If everybody's blind, guess what? You're blind, right? You're simply becoming your own blind guide if you're trusting in your own wisdom, um, leading yourself is not the answer. Um, and in fact, Jesus, uh, Jesus emphasizes this in verse 12. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Um, the, the root problem of the Pharisees was their pride. Pride is when we think we don't need anyone else. Pride is when we're convinced we know the right answer, when we are certain we're smart enough to figure it out on our own. That's pride. Right? And pride is what blinded the eyes of the Pharisees. And pride is what's, what blinds all of humanity. 
we're convinced we're smart enough. Like maybe Einstein was wrong, but I'm better, right? I got to figure it out, right? Maybe the scribes and Pharisees were, were off, but I know better, right? That's pride. And it is our pride that blinds us. Um, so we need to find, the, the, the solution is, we need to find a different teacher. Right? The only way to stop being the product of someone else's teaching is when you start being the product of a better teacher. Okay? The only way to stop being the product of someone else's bad teaching is when you start being the product, the disciple, the follower of a better teacher. So Jesus says this in verse 8. You are not to be to the to the to his disciples, to his followers, he says, you are not to be called rabbi. Why? For you have one teacher. That's Jesus, right? And you are just brothers. You're all just brothers. And call no man your father on earth. It doesn't mean here earthly father, but he means a spiritual father. Right? They would call spiritual leaders a father. Uh, call no one your father on earth. For you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Right? There's only one who is not blind. Only one. And it's Jesus. Only one who can really speak authoritatively the word of God without ever making a mistake. Who lived it out and spoke it perfectly. Only Jesus. Right? And, and, and these, these titles, Rabbi, Spiritual Father, Instructor, are earthly titles of status and authority that, that, they, that the Pharisees wanted people to call them. But Jesus says, no, there's really only one teacher. There's only one guide who can lead us. It's Jesus. Right? We're all just brothers. We're all just fellow lost, blind people who need a guide. There's only one who can really teach us, and that's Jesus. He alone is qualified. Some smart people will say, yeah, but how do you know Jesus is any different, right? How do you know Jesus isn't just like all the rest? How do you know he's the one who sees? Well, we'll learn about that next Sunday, right? The way we know Jesus is right is he rose from the dead. Like, like nobody else gets to claim that, right? That kind of puts him in his own class, right? He conquered the grave. So I think we can trust him as truth. So Jesus ends again with these words. He says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humbling yourself means I don't, I don't know how to figure it out. I don't know if my way is right. I don't know if what I've learned is true. And, and I'm in trouble because I don't even know where to turn to find truth. Because I don't know. I am blind. That's humility. Right? Pride says, oh, I'll figure it out. I'm smart enough. You know, science will help me, and, and I'll use my own instinct and my own intellect and my own logic, and I'll figure it out. Humility says, no, we're all blind, and I need help. I need help. And the only one who can help is Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.